0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. Coming up on today's show, China putting out numbers, a revision of how many died. They were off by 50%. Can we trust China with anything, let alone 5G? How is the President of the United States reacting to us not wanting the border open? We'll have those discussions coming up on the Scott Thompson Show Podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on nine hundred CHML, some really interesting and I would say startling information coming out of uh, Wuhan, China, in the last twenty four hours, and they have um, said that they've made a miscalculation in the numbers and their death counts and such, and as a result of that, have uh, doubled the amount of deaths in uh, Wuhan. Uh, many in the uh, in the province, in the uh, in the city, are questioning uh, the numbers that. Chinese officials are handing out. Um, But again, uh, uh, the Prime Minister very much uh, pressured today of why he seems to be being very politically correct towards China, does not even mention uh, the city when questioning, or the country rather, when being questioned several times uh, about all of this, uh, saying that he's focusing on the here and now. That being said, uh, accurate information from the originating country would certainly be helping Canadians, would it not? Uh, To talk about all of this, let's bring in Gordon holden director of the china institute professor of political science at the university of alberta uh, he is with us now thank you very much for the time gordon we hope you're doing well
1: i am well and healthy i'm isolated with my family and our dogs thanks scott
0: <laughs> isn't it amazing how important pets are at this time
1: we have three of them and our kids are growing up and have their own lives in other cities but uh... They are um, a great source of joy, and they are amazingly untroubled by what's going on. Um, If I were given to conspiracy theories, which I'm not, I would suspect that it was invented by dogs to get their people to stay around and be available for uh, companionship. And very and, and, and
0: certainly a torque up of the walking schedule as well. They seem to be getting, getting them on a daily basis, sometimes even a couple of times a day.
1: They get uh, their walks. We all observe uh, proper social distancing to their frustration, but yes. So it's, uh, what's a bad thing for sure for humans is uh, it seems not such a bad thing for our uh, four-footed friends.
0: All right, Gordon, what are your thoughts on the information that's being released out of Wuhan, where they have doubled their death rates uh, by 50 percent? Your thoughts on all of this?
1: Well, I think that was overdue. I think I wasn't the only one. Many people, and including, I'm confident, many Chinese people found their numbers um, suspiciously low. Um, I partially buy the explanation that in the chaos, um, people dying at home, makeshift hospitals, mixed-up databases, perhaps. Uh, So a 50% increase for Wuhan itself, another um, 1,300, approximately, I guess, 1,290 deaths added net. Uh, That makes the numbers somewhat more credible, although I do find for a population that's um, uh, more than triple the population of the United States that the overall numbers now, over 4,000 dead, are low. Um, So I think this was... Will do whether we'll ever get precise numbers. Um, I'm not sure
0: why not. What does this say? And again, anybody can buy the, uh, buy the excuse that you know these are very fluid times and such, but by 50%, I mean, maybe one, two, three, five, 10%, but 50%. Yeah. Uh, it, w- yeah.
1: w- what does this say about China? Well, I think it says that there was – I think there's two problems here. I think there was genuine chaos, opening up hospitals, et cetera, people dying at home and maybe being cremated before their numbers were properly tested, what tests they had were probably focused on the living, not on the dead. Uh, fine. Um, but um, this is a, a country that counts people fairly carefully. I think one of the problems, particularly in the early phases, is in every bureaucracy, and I was a bureaucrat once, in every bureaucracy there's a lot of tendency – to not tell the, the unvarnished truth, the bad news up the chain. In Chinese system, that is a much bigger problem. I suspect, and here the responsibility would lie with the Wuhan and Hubei party structure, that they were perhaps um, concealing um, the worst news from party central in Beijing. Um, there's also a possibility that Beijing itself was downplaying the numbers to reassure the populace. Uh, but... It can't just be poor reporting, Um, even with this correction. I think there were other factors, and I think the main one was probably a desire not to ensue panic and to make China look better.
0: How can the rest of the world possibly believe anything China says after this, considering uh, the chaos that the world is now in because of this? Am I being too
1: critical? Well, I think that we have to be critical of China. But the bigger problem is not the miscounting, in my view. The bigger problem, although it is a problem, the bigger problem was delay. Now, the delay, as you know, I was in Beijing during SARS. That delay was months. In this case, the delay in reporting was in weeks and days. But that delay would have given the West a better lead time to prepare. I don't think that the West used what lead we did get very well. I think we were slow off the mark, I mean collectively, perhaps the worst case in the United States, UK, Italy, and Spain. But uh, if that lead time had been greater, that to me is the greater problem uh, than the misreporting or underreporting. Both are issues, but the the timing of knowing what we're dealing with every day counted in terms of preparation, and and that delay was, was damning. So
0: how can the rest of the world trust China after this, especially when they're trying to sell the world five G while tracking everything their own citizens do on their own phones? Like, how can the world trust China?
1: Well, that'll be that'll be the question. Now, um, I, I guess I, I still remember Reagan saying of a trust but verify. Um, I think it has got to, to be a lot more verification. And for example, in this case, the another. This one won't help us now, but a great unsolved mystery is exactly when did this appear and where. And uh, was it in Wuhan? Was it in the wet market? Did it get loose from a lab? Um, some things I've seen recently suggested it may have been much earlier and further south like in the same areas, perhaps where SARS had come from. To solve that problem, we need not just the Chinese to look into it, but I think we need a blue ribbon commission with international health experts of high credibility going to China, looking at the data, working with the Chinese scientists, but verifying their numbers, their theories, their data. Uh, so in other words, I think intrusive verification would help. And I personally think we ought to have um, Western medical experts uh, stationed in China um, working closely with Chinese universities. The thing is, you can't You can't, maybe not just the government of China or the party, fair enough, but China is too big and too integrated into the global economy and the global economic system to just put it in a box. So I think more sharing of information and verification whenever possible is the way to go.
0: The Prime Minister um, was questioned very aggressively on this uh, at his press conference today and was even accused of not mentioning the word China in any of this uh, when addressing this exact issue. Uh, Why is the Prime Minister being so politically correct towards China? He says his main job is to look after Canadians, not going there. However, If China isn't giving us accurate information, is that not hurting Canadians as opposed to helping us get through this?
1: Well, fair enough. And, of course, it's easy for me. I'm I'm not in government. But my view is, and this is the media's role, of course, is let the chips fall where they may. Uh, The government has been very wary of criticizing U.S. President for reasons I understand. He's likely to lash back, has been very reluctant to criticize China, um, perhaps because they want to improve that relationship, which is also which is in a real doldrums, is at a low point right now. But uh, I'd argue that makes it even more important for the media and for, I'd argue, universities as well, to be fearless in, in uh, calling out where we see problems. But again, we still have to work with the Chinese. The trick will be how do we get the right information and how do we verify it, because we need that.
0: And again, I, you know, I don't think it's about criticizing. And I mean, many have said, well, as soon as you raise these questions, you're being racist. You know, uh, I'm not criticizing. I just think we need to hear the information. Governments need to be transparent. Obviously, you're not going to get that with a communist government. But, you know, again, it seems that whenever we mention this, it's as if, it's as if we're being scolded and we're being racist for, ans- for asking simple, honest, transparent questions.
1: Good point. I mean, the truth must out. And the basic truth involves that this virus originated in China, perhaps in Wuhan, perhaps somewhere else, at least by December, maybe earlier. Um, and, and then these things can be the – ver- the fact that it emerged in China and killed a lot of people there is, is a fact. Uh, but digging deeper, naming the facts, um, not necessarily with the prime minister getting into the precise detail of the date or place, but yes, we have to acknowledge that this was China origin and folks should not be afraid of saying that. And that would include our leadership. I would tend to agree with you. So
0: why are we so reluctant to do that, Gordon? It's as if we're, we're, we're being more stern with the United States than we are with, with China.
1: Well, I don't think it involves, should involve prejudice. I, again, there are concerns that Canadians of Asian origin and Chinese origin should not be um, cast or prejudiced or viewed negatively because of this. But I would agree with I you. agree. Simply naming the place that it came from, where it originated and when, that's a relevant detail. And I think when government speaks truth and names basic facts, again, I don't expect the Prime Minister to get into the, the, the details of, 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 of origins, of the genetic origins, of. RDA or NDA, uh, uh, DNA, where it came from, but just basic facts, as you're suggesting. I think that is necessary, and I don't have a good answer as to why these things can't be said, but it's best when they are said, and then we move on and let the scientists and historians dig into the origins while we deal with what's right before us.
0: I think that is the number one problem for the prime minister in this issue is his lack of transparency. Everything else, he's doing a great job. But when people are asking him questions, he's not answering them. And again, like you said, you can go around it in a political way and say what you want to say. But still, you've got to get the facts out.
1: Get the basic facts out. And then his experts can follow up on the excruciatingly detailed information that involves virology. And all of these issues. And he has access to those. But the basic ones, it originated in China in, in 2019. That's why it's called COVID-19, of course. And this is where it came from. We didn't know early enough. Those are, are facts, as you suggest. And then others can dig into the details. And I think when you lance that boil, so to speak, when you just confront it, I think then people can move on to the reality that's with us right now in our own country.
0: Gordon Holden's been with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta. Gordon, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. And be well. Have a great weekend.
1: Same to you. A great weekend to you and your listeners. Thank you,
0: Scott. We talked a lot about 5G before all of this and whether we should get it, whether we shouldn't take it, whether we should use other means of getting 5G other than Huawei and China and such. Uh, now there's uh, a chatter fla- uh, flapping around that this whole thing could be delayed. To talk more about all of this, tech analyst Carmi Levy is with us. Carmi, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well.
2: Oh, I am. We're uh, hunkered down here like everyone else. and. Working remotely, just doing the best that we can to get through this. And thankfully, we have lots of technology to do that.
0: So there's lots of conspiracies flying around, including that 5G uh, could maybe be causing COVID-19, which I find fascinating. That 4G didn't, but that extra G has just put us over the edge. <laughs> uh, so we'll throw that one away. But what? How is this going to affect the rollout uh, over and above whether we take uh, Huawei's system or not? The whole the whole 5G thing. How does this? What does this uh, do to that situation?
2: Well, so far in Canada, there has not been any change. We are scheduled to have an auction for 5G spectrum uh, in the so-called 3,500 megahertz spectrum this December. As far as I can tell, it is still on the calendar. Uh, the government has not announced uh, that this is changed or that they are pushing it back. Um, and of course, you know the reason we have spectrum auctions. Uh, you know, you, uh, telecom companies can't simply put up a network and then start offering services. The spectrum, the the sort of the sliver, the sliver or slice of radio uh, airwaves on which these services will be deployed. They're actually owned by you and me, by the public, and the government auctions them off. And companies have to pay uh, into the hundreds of millions, in some cases, billions of dollars for the right to provide services over this radio spectrum. So, uh, so far that's going ahead, but we're seeing a rising wave around the world. Other countries, Spain, Portugal, France, Austria, Denmark, they've postponed their spectrum auctions. And the reason being is obviously because of the pandemic, they're saying now's not the time. Uh, You know, telecom, telecommunication companies, they're like every other company, they're dealing with uh, concerns over their revenue. They're reining things in, they're laying people off and this is just not the, the the environment. This is not the right time to be going ahead with an auction and then uh, compelling them to spend billions of dollars to build a network that, let's face it, you and I probably aren't going to be using because we're not buying 5G phones anytime soon. So, you know, Canada so far, no change in plans, but looking outside of our borders, there's a trend in its building. It looks like globally we're going to be pushing that 5G timeline back and at some point... It'll probably start affecting what we do here in Canada.
0: Uh, Before any of the COVID 19 discussions started, many were skeptical about China being the backbone. Um, uh, because of China being ruled by the Communist Party of China, and pretty much every business under that uh, is controlled by that party. Uh, We're certainly seeing numbers now coming out of Wuhan uh, that weren't accurate, and they've changed their figures by like 50%. Uh, We've certainly heard how uh, China is using technology to follow its people and so on and so forth. Uh, Do we trust China post-COVID-19?
2: I wouldn't. Uh, you know, and, and you know, I, I I tend not to get political in my coverage of the technology industry, but it's hard not to be political when you look at, at Chinese companies like primarily Huawei, which is in the running to be one of those companies that provides the hardware and the software and all the, the equipment that makes 5G possible. They want to be able to bolt on their equipment onto the cell phone towers that allow us to have 5G service. The problem is, as you said, as a Chinese company, they are beholden. They are bound by the Communist Party of China that at the party's request, if they want to share, if they, if, if they ask to share information from their operations, they must. This is a condition of doing business in China. We know this. Huawei has made it clear that they're not uh, kind of at the beck and call of the Chinese government, but history says otherwise. And so, yeah, as an analyst... And as a Canadian, I'd be very concerned about my traffic, anything that I do on my smartphone, uh, being transported or transmitted over equipment that was put in place by a Chinese company with such close ties to the government. This was an issue before uh, COVID. It's an even bigger issue now. And I think going forward, it makes it a very clear black and white decision. If you're the Canadian government, you're going to want to put limits on this. Otherwise, basically, we've just opened the door to unlimited Chinese espionage on all of us.
0: How big a hit is this to China? And considering that most of those big companies already use China to uh, to manufacture their products, how is that going to change?
2: It's it's significant, and this is really nothing you know nothing less than a wholesale change in the way our economy is structured. I think we realize now that uh, simply outsourcing everything to China over the last number of decades has left us really vulnerable right about now. And so economically, the fact that you can't produce things like, or you aren't producing things like N95 masks and PPE uh, in the US or in Canada, that it all has to be shipped over from China, um that's one of the reasons why more people are dying than they have to and so i think economically there's going to be a shift toward asking you know why are we not manufacturing it closer to home why does it have to be in china Uh, and i think it tilts the the landscape a little bit more toward competing companies at least in the wireless space like nokia or ericsson uh, who are not manufacturing hardware in china they're manufacturing it in europe and would happily manufacture it in Canada if we asked for a licensing deal. So I think going forward, you're going to see some manufacturing come back here simply because I think we've learned that uh, low price isn't necessarily low price uh, when politics gets involved. We heard
0: before COVID-19 that UK was at least going to give them a window and let them into
2: part of it. Would that be changing now? I would think so. Uh, I think the pandemic has Thrown a whole lot of decisions that were made before, uh, you know, March or February, uh, into question, uh, and I would think that governments like the one in the UK, as well as others who have been a little bit more conciliatory toward uh, Huawei on the 5G issue, would be looking at those decisions and going, Hey, you know what? In this context. Uh, you know, we, you know what what worked a couple of months ago doesn't work anymore, and I think we really need to reopen that decision and look at it differently and maybe come to a different conclusion. I think it makes sense. It's not that there aren't other companies who are willing and able to provide the equipment on a competitive basis and allow us to build out our next generation 5G networks. Uh, if Huawei were the only the only game in town, I'd say yeah, we've got an issue, but that's not the case. It's a competitive landscape, and Huawei can cut prices all at once at the end of the day, even if it's half the price of a competing offering, even that might be too expensive.
0: So how does China and Huawei now try to sell their 5G network post COVID-19?
2: Well, they have to make it abundantly clear that Huawei is not the Chinese government and they have to you know mid, you know essentially put it. but that place- would be impossible, right? Uh, it would be unless they set up an absolutely separate company that's based in North America or based in Europe that has no ties back to China, um, and they illustrate in concrete terms what those, you know, what those firewalls look like. Uh, so that wait a sec, might- Carmi, wouldn't that be, wait a sec, Carmi, wouldn't that be called Cantel? <laughs> or... <laughs> yeah we've been down this road before and and we all know how that ended up and uh no i mean yeah, i mean i i think it's a very it's a very difficult uphill battle for Huawei to fight um if it was in trouble in january of 2020 i think now it's uh its global hopes for expansion are fairly close to being dashed, and I think the next few years are going to be very difficult for this Chinese giant uh, to navigate. Um, and you know what? I have I have no sympathy for them. This is a competitive business. If you get in, in bed with the wrong people and, and conditions change, um, then you've got to deal with the consequences. Uh, as, as a Canadian, our interests have to be paramount, and we have to put our interests ahead of anyone, anyone else's, Um, And we want to have the best network. We want to have it before other countries. We want it to be cost competitive. We want it to be secure. Um, And, you know, if we can't get those answers from Huawei, and I don't think we can or ever will, we're going to have to get them from someone else. And if that means that Huawei fades as a global player, then so be it.
0: Uh, So if Huawei takes the hit here, is this a great opportunity for those other companies?
2: I think it is, you know, let's face it the pie is only so large. Uh we are at an historic time in history when we're transitioning from the older 4G networks to the newer 5G ones and so that means Telecom companies around the world are going to be cracking open their wallets and writing very large checks over the next few years. And so uh, this is uh, Nokia's and Ericsson's, who are the two major competitors. This is their opportunity to shine. You know, they do have a track record. Uh, You know, we do have history with them. Lots of their equipment is already installed on older uh, generations of technology on Canadian wireless networks. And so it's not like we haven't worked with them previously. And I think if they are everything that they say they are, and I believe they are, I've been studying them for years, uh, then they can rise to the occasion and take some of that pie away from Huawei. In recent years, Huawei's growth has largely been driven by price. They uh, they kind of they they benchmark what what everyone else is offering, and then they come in and say we'll give you more, and we'll take 30% off the price, and they basically give them a price they can't refuse. Well, um, I think we now realize that price uh, is only one component of the overall cost of a network building. Hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of people well realize said. That even if they get a great bargain, it's going to cost them too much.
0: Carmi Levy has been with us, tech analyst, talking about the rollout of 5G perhaps being delayed because of uh, COVID-19. Carmi, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Be well. Great being here, Scott. You as well. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Here's what Premier Doug Ford had to say on the Bill Kelly show this morning about the border.
3: We all love our, our neighbors to the south of us. Uh, uh, I'm just asking them, stay at home. Uh, please don't cross the border. And uh, we'll, we'll have time for that in, in, uh, in the future. But right right now, we have to lock down our borders. And if there's one thing we probably could have done better as a as a province, as a country, and municipalities right across the board uh, we're we're such a welcoming country, and we'll always be that way, and we always have our arms uh, open for for people to come here and uh, but I, I think we we could have, and this is no slight against anyone because I'm a, a big fan and big supporter of what the federal government's doing. But as I've mentioned, we we should have shut down our our borders uh, sooner and we should have better screening at uh, our airports, Uh, especially with uh, uh, everyone coming back from abroad. We had over a million people come back from abroad and there was, uh, I believe, inefficient screening uh, at the airports.
0: All right, that is uh, Premier Doug Ford on the Bill Kelly show earlier on this morning. And uh, the Premier will speak at his daily press conference coming up after one o'clock. We will certainly carry that live. All right, according to uh, data, it looks like they, well, at least we can see the, the light at the end of all of this. It doesn't mean let up by any means, but at least uh, we're seeing the light. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, a faculty member in human and social sciences, health policy advisor, Wilfrid Laurier University. He is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. Uh, Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. Of course.
4: Happy to speak to you again, Scott.
0: So your thoughts, Ahmad, on where we are now? We seem to be hearing a bit more optimism.
4: Yes, I think we're cautiously cautiously optimistic. Uh, We've seen that cases in the country now are only doubling every 10 days or so. This is, of course, a big comparison to what we saw three days ago or late in March.
0: So, what message do you have with this? Because again, uh, preceding all of this is chatter about how we get out of this, how we open it up. Um, we have to be, be dil, uh, diligent and, and stay focused at this point. Uh, how do we balance the good news and, and the, the, the process that's put, been put in front of us?
4: I'm really happy that good news are coming out from our reports and data, that we our efforts to physically distance, to close down uh, non-essential services is working because it's giving us hope. It's giving all of us uh, an idea and a glimpse to what the future might look like, which is an optimistic one, that if we continue the course, we continue our efforts, it's not the time to relax. It's the time to strengthen what we already have in place to really hopefully get at this uh, once and for all so that we're addressed it for good.
0: Uh, we've heard uh, that this will be a very gradual thing as we come down the backside of this curve again.
4: I'm not sure. Have we hit the peak yet? Where? What are your thoughts on the peak of this, Ahmad? I don't believe we've hit the peak yet. I think the peak is yet to come, and that's by virtue of us testing more cases, identifying and contact tracing more uh, COVID-19 patients. And so the peak, I don't think we're there yet. But I do believe that our system is, if we continue the way we're doing it, which is that we're not overburdening our health system, uh, it's gradually adapting to the number of cases, that we will get to a, num- a, a point very soon in the near future where we start easing up on some things. And, for example, I think we're going to see possibly first thing our family doctors being back in operation. We're going to see that elective surgeries, people that have been waiting on them for a long time, can actually get those done. Uh, I think that will be the first signs of our health system sort of back opening up.
0: Uh, what are your thoughts about the process and how we go about doing this? How important is the, is it that we do this very gradually? And, and I guess the reasoning behind that is if things start to go backwards, it's less work to get us back to where we are now.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So the best way to explain this is think of yourself going on a hike on a mountain going up the mountain it's sunny and beautiful days out and so it's carefully going up the mountain but coming down that mountain we're sort of in that darkness phase we're at that nightfall so nobody wants to go down a a big mountain at night we have to wait for it till the sunshine comes up so we go gradually down the mountain this is the best way to explain where we are right now we're getting close to the top of the mountain we haven't got there yet once we get there we need to gradually go down waiting for signs of optimism, which is that we're not seeing exponential growth in the number of cases. We're seeing that our health system is able to respond to its immediate urgent needs. And then we can finally eventually make it all the way to the bottom.
0: When this first all started, doctor, the concern was uh, we have to flatten the curve, spread it out per se. Not necessarily, uh, you know. Even if we see a spike in cases, we have to we have to uh, stretch it out over a long period of time in order not to overwhelm the healthcare system. Are you confident now where the healthcare system is when it comes to supplies and such? If in fact we do hit a spike.
4: Yes, I do believe so. I think we're resilient. Our system is resilient and sustainable, and by that I mean is that we're very good at adapting to cases. We were at a very dangerous point where we didn't have TPEs, we didn't have uh, many of the, the of the resources that we needed to get ahead of this. I think the country has taken a lot of uh, you know leadership position in trying to secure this. Do we, will we see cases and hear reports of? Some problems, of course. I mean, you know, you can never just go into this and say it's all perfect. There will always be issues. But it's trial and error, Scott. We're, we're learning as we go along and we're adapting. And that's part of resiliency is being able to adapt to emerging problems fast.
0: And and we we've seemed to have get the the supplies and the hospital issues uh, rectified quite quickly. Although uh, we've certainly seen what's happened in the nursing homes and, and those other uh, similar type facilities and such. And when you think about it, and and, and I know because you know I've, I've got elderly relatives and friends uh, that have been in these. I mean, the whole idea there is about community. It's about everybody mm-hmm. getting together. It's about socializing and and living out your later years and in. in in, in a community, so to speak. How do we balance that with uh, what we have now? What is the new situation for these homes? And perhaps this is, you know, this is exposed issues that were there long before uh, COVID-19, I'm afraid. But but how is this going to change the way we regulate and, and uh, administer this industry?
4: Well, I believe that's where we failed. Uh, as a health system, as a social system, we failed our long-term care Uh, long-term care nursing homes. We failed our homeless populations. We're trying our best, and by we, I mean everybody involved in this. We're trying our best to address them, but this COVID-19 showed us the weaknesses. It showed us that we we need to build long-term care centres that are more adaptable to cases like COVID-19. We don't have uh, self-isolation units within uh, homeless shelters. And so I think COVID-19 is really showing us that we're not able to really take care of our vulnerable populations as well as we should have, and that there's much work needs to be done into this uh, highly priority group areas. So residents of long-term and retirement homes, a remote, isolated, rural, and in indigenous communities, big concern for us they can really have a big impact on the curve and how well we do. So I think the message here is loud and clear to everybody involved is that we really now to uh, buckle down and look about how to address the health needs of our vulnerable populations in Canada.
0: So here we are, Ahmad, and we've just finished week five of this, uh, heading into another weekend. It seems it was just a, a couple of eye blinks ago that we were talking mm-hmm. about the Easter long weekend, and here we are, we're through another one. Uh, what advice do you have for people who, uh, you know, have have been very anxious about all of that uh, and now starting to see a bit of light at the end of the tunnel?
4: My advice is that your anxiety is real and valid and, and comes from a real place. I think that I empathize with everybody who is feeling this le- level of anxiety about what the future holds and uncertainty. My message is really cl- loud and clear for this coming weekend. Try to find optimism in the numbers that are coming out, in the hope, the optimistic hope that we are flattening that curve, that our effort, everybody involved, uh, is really is working. Every small thing you're doing to help us get ahead of this COVID-19 is making a huge difference. So uh, I ask everybody to continue that optimism and that we will look back at this day very, very soon, hopefully, and say we we got together as a community, we got ahead of this, uh, and we're at the other side of this now, looking back and reflecting on our success of collaborating and getting uh, on top of this pandemic.
0: Well said, Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, faculty member in human and social sciences and health policy advisor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Ahmad, thank you so much for the time as always. Be well. You too. Thank you. Scott. Let's bring in Dion Elliman, associate professor, Department of Mechanical and Industrial Engineering, faculty of applied sciences and engineering director, medical operations research lab at the University of Toronto and is with us now. Dion, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well.
5: Yeah, I'm doing all right. I hope you're staying safe uh, in or out there, wherever you are. Yeah, we're
0: trying to. So obviously, we have not. It doesn't seem like we're at the peak of this yet, but we can certainly see it coming. Is there reason for optimism? Can we see the light at the end of the tunnel? Your thoughts on where we are now?
5: Yeah, so I'd say right now there's reason for cautious optimism. It does look like we are starting to uh, to reach a bend in the curve where we're 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 beginning to see that we might be approaching that, that flat spot that we've been trying to achieve. But um, it will really take a couple of weeks um, of observations about how our daily infection rates are changing before we can really be certain that, that we've approached that uh, that sharp curve towards flatness and that we're in the flat zone. Because right now, you know, with just a, a few days uh, of data looking like things are flattening, it could just be a little bit of noise in the system, some random fluctuations, right. um, or... You know, it could be that uh, new cases that appear will be uh, sort of retroactively updated to uh, to have their infection start the day when their symptoms started, not the day that they were actually tested. So there's a chance that some of these more recent numbers could be revised upwards. However, um, it's definitely much more comfortable looking than uh, than we've seen before. So, like I said, reason for cautious optimism.
0: What can we learn from jurisdictions, countries, what have you, that are ahead of us on this, that are, that are a few weeks ahead and starting to see some decline? Um,
5: I think the big thing to learn uh, in looking at other countries that, is that countries that have done well in controlling COVID-19 are countries that have uh, really excelled at tracking their population and really knowing who is and isn't infected. Uh, infected. And that really takes a lot of testing, like not just isolated testing of people who have certain symptoms or certain travel histories, but really broad population testing to really know exactly what's going on. And then you can focus your quarantine and control efforts on the people who you know to be uh, positive, and that's where we can really see a lot of control uh, start to happen and see a real dampening to uh, to the spread of disease. Uh,
0: it seems that uh, uh, Wuhan, where this uh, apparently started, um, that the num- we've seen them slowly start to get back to normal uh, and such. And, and then in the last 24 hours, we've heard numbers come out, revised numbers uh, from China saying that uh, they miscalculated or they've rejigged the numbers uh, and updated them but it's gone up by like 50 percent most can see a 5 10 percent switch in numbers as you know as you said the the lag picks up but to be off by 50 percent it certainly seems like we are not getting accurate information accurate numbers out of china how important is it for us to have accurate information from places like this
5: uh, information is paramount, uh, really, in any sort of um, policy decision making or any aspect of life, really. Um, you know, China has certainly um, put themselves in a position where the world has to cast doubt on the numbers that uh, that they put forward, whether it's because of these. Huge and largely unexplained fluctuations, like 50% increase over a short period of time, or just you know, suppression of the numbers um, early in the outbreak, um, it makes it difficult for the rest of the world to get a good idea about um, how the disease is progressing and how um, the public policy measures that China has put into place, um, how effective were they? Well, we don't really know because we, you know, we have some you know concerns about the numbers that are coming out of China, which means that we can't necessarily use what China has done as a benchmark or a piece of information to help us guide our own policy decision makings.
6: What
0: will our recovery look like? Um, And and we've heard officials and the prime minister say that until we have a vaccine, which is at least a year away from what I understand, um, we we can't take our foot off the gas. We can lighten up a little bit, but we have to keep going in the direction we're going. Will life still be somewhat altered until we get a vaccine?
5: Uh, I'd say in all likelihood, yeah, that'll be the case, that uh, we we won't really have a true return to normalcy until we can get a huge percentage of the population vaccinated, like enough to achieve herd immunity. And the reason for that is that even once we get things under control here in Canada, um, we don't know how controlled things are in other parts of the world, which means we'll have to still – Keep our borders um, either, you know, mostly closed like they are now, or with some sorts of of like more targeted restrictions. Although those can be hard to really effectively implement. So as long as people are coming into our country from places where um, we don't know what's happening or where there's just you know even small amounts of COVID-19, there's always a possibility that there will be flare-ups that happen here. Additionally, flare-ups could happen even without uh, you know external uh, infection influences, just from People who are COVID-19 positive who uh, maybe don't realize it because their symptoms are, are very mild. Um, maybe they you know, didn't get tested because we haven't been able to do widespread testing. Uh, maybe they didn't get vaccinated for whatever reason. Or, you know, vaccines aren't always 100 uh, percent effective for every individual. So maybe the vaccine wasn't particularly effective for one person. And then they end up managing to cause a flare up uh, of the outbreak somewhere but um, hopefully you know in those situations um, you know the resulting w- ripples that come out uh, from that that one person would be um, m- much milder than what we're seeing now because most of the population will hopefully be vaccinated by that time and our public health health agencies will be able to to quickly come down, figure out uh, who's been exposed and monitor and control those people until we can ensure that uh, all those ripples um, smooth away. But we probably will see these little flare-ups that happen here and there um, for you know, quite some time to come. And uh, uh, only- you know, the, the earlier we open back up you know, our businesses, our economy, the, the more potential for these flare-ups and the larger and uh, potentially more catastrophic they'll be.
0: A real quick question. We're on a limited amount of time here. Uh, What will that vaccination administration look like? Will this be in the form of a flu shot? Will it be like next year's flu shot? It's in there, or will it be a separate vaccination? Uh, Any idea?
5: Uh, Well, that I don't know. That's a little bit uh, outside of uh, my area of knowledge.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for the time, Dion, and you take care this weekend.
5: Thank you. You too.
0: You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900-CHML. I want to get in Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News uh, down in the United States of America. He is with us now. Reggie, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. Uh, Not sure about down there, but up here, the big story in the last 24 hours was Donald Trump musing about opening the Canada-U.S. border. Uh, That was greeted with a firm no from uh, the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford. The Prime Minister is sort of getting around eventually to to, to saying that. How is this all playing in the United States, considering Donald Trump was talking about opening the borders and Canada said no?
6: Well, look the conversation about the borders is almost a non-starter in the United States i mean the us is is quickly approaching 700,000 confirmed cases. It's on the approach to or just over 34,000 confirmed deaths. And the comment from the president was simply an off-the-cuff remark that he made during his press conference a couple of days ago. It didn't go anywhere beyond that. It hasn't been uh, discussed anywhere. Uh, But it also would uh, kind of fall short of expectations right now as a number of states are trying to deal with their own rising uh, numbers when it comes to confirmed cases, notably in New York State. Washington State is still uh, starting to Uh, put numbers out as well that show that they're still seeing confirmed cases and deaths and that would kind of uh, uh, make it difficult to open up any kind of border for for uh, cross-border traffic to be going back and forth and when you think about it 700,000 confirmed cases in the U.S. would pose problems for Canadians uh, with the sheer number of Americans that could potentially come in and cause uh, further spread in Canada.
0: Uh, There were comments in the last couple of days about uh, who has jurisdiction over the states and the state's ability to do their own thing. Uh, uh, How is that playing out? What is the mood of Donald Trump on this heading into this weekend?
6: Well, look, the president have, you know, has ceded control of the state back to the state's governors by uh, unveiling these new guidelines for how to reopen the economy and saying that it's going to be in governors' hands to be able to progress through a staged approach to be able to reopen the government. And what that does is give the Constitution back to the uh, governors, where it is their responsibility to kind of deal with the functions of their own state. But it, what it also does in a more sly way is potentially absolve the president of any wrongdoing if the plan doesn't come uh, uh, doesn't uh, move forward as it's supposed to or if a secondary outbreak happens later this year the president could say well look this was in your hands governor all you did was follow the guidelines that we put out we didn't put any national rules out
0: so uh we certainly know what's happening in canada and and how uh canada has reacted canadians have reacted to this we're seeing uh in some parts of uh, of i guess michigan and such where there's demonstrations and and those pushing back against the stay at home orders is the united states behind these measures
6: Well, look, the president is kind of, uh, you know, adding a little bit of fuel to the fire when it comes to these protests that are happening around the country. There have been some protests taking place in Minnesota. The president, within the last couple of hours, uh, issuing a tweet saying liberate Minnesota. But it's also worth noting, again, that the governors play the instrumental role here in forcing the uh, states to shut down in order to prevent the spread of COVID-19 and we're seeing now in uh, a state like South Dakota which never implemented a shelter-in-place or a stay-at-home order the state has seen its cases triple over the last week and there are so many cases happening at such a rapid pace now one of the country's largest meat processing plants in South Dakota is in jeopardy because 600 of its employees have now tested positive. So while there are uh, protests out there, people saying, you know, this is kind of uh, infringing on our rights and this is not a free state anymore, governors are saying, look, the reason we're telling you to stay inside is so you don't get sick because look at what's happening in South Dakota.
0: Uh, We're certainly hearing new numbers coming out of Wuhan, China, where this uh, apparently all originated from. um, And and we're getting revisions on their numbers by 50 percent. You know, we can see uh, uh, numbers uh, being fudged or jiggled or, you know, again, a very fluid situation. So it's tough to measure by five, 10 percent. But 50 percent. How is that going over with the president?
6: Well, I mean, this is kind of where the president had started his fight with the World Health Organization earlier this week when he decided to halt their funding, uh, saying that the WHO uh, simply took China's word and uh, believed their transparency when they were saying that they had a control of the situation and when they were giving their numbers out there. It was widely known around the world that China was probably uh, kind of muddying up what the actual statistics were to make it not look as bad. Uh, But remember, the president himself had praised China for their transparency transparency uh, just earlier this year and in March during an interview with Fox Business had said that he believed that China uh, had a good hold of the situation and that the country was working well with Americans. So, you know, there's a lot to be digested when it comes to China, when it comes to the origin of COVID-19, when it comes to how it spread so quickly and where it originally came from in Wuhan province. This is all going to be something that is put under a microscope once the world, you know, eventually gets through uh, this, this kind of global health crisis.
0: How does the president handle questions about those contradictory views of China?
6: Well, look, the president handles his questions the same way no matter what the question is. If it's about China, depending on what the situation is, he'll either laud the country for doing something well or he will bash somebody else for being too close to China, always being very careful to walk a fine line when it comes to the Chinese government, understanding that China and America are intertwined so immensely when it comes to to uh, business and trade relations between the two one does not want to do uh, you know something that's going to send the other over a cliff but a lot of times when the president is pressed with a question be it about china be it about testing be it about something he doesn't have a response to he either pivots to go somewhere else or like we saw yesterday he shut down a press briefing when he was asked uh, about testing simply because he didn't have an answer
0: uh, we've certainly heard what his views are on the World Health Organization has paused funding, uh, and certainly or certainly talked about pausing funding to this until he figures out what is going on there. Calling them China-centric at one point, and again questioning the accuracy of theirs of their numbers, many condemned him for that. But as an, an aside to all of this, many are saying, "Well, these should these issues should be looked at. It's just this isn't the time to cut off funding because we're in." the middle of a pandemic as much as we criticize Donald Trump should we give him credit for bringing this stuff to the forefront
6: well I mean the World Health Organization has been uh, put under a spotlight before for its actions and for its behaviors and you know there is you'd be hard-pressed to find a uh, kind of world organization that, is, uh, that has no flaws. There are obviously flaws everywhere in the world, uh, world Health Organization has them as well. And the president, well, you know, saying that these need to be looked at uh, is just simply choosing an inopportune time. He's trying to deflect his administration's own shortcomings, particularly when it comes to testing around the U.S., which is why uh, they have the highest number of confirmed cases anywhere in the world. He's deflecting this to make it the problem of somebody else like the WHO, because moments after the president spoke, the head of the Centers for Disease Control, who was a Trump appointee, had said that the WHO actually does incredible work and that the U.S. continues to stand beside them as they fight not only COVID-19, but other diseases that are creating issues around the world, and that pausing funding right now will simply put an undue burden on other nations. And while the WHO does need to be looked at, It's just a question as to whether or not the president is is using an inopportune time to politicize something that simply needs to have a health focus on it.
0: Uh, We remember even prior to COVID-19, and we've talked a lot, Reggie, about uh, politics in the United States over the last uh, year or so. um, Has COVID-19 united America or kept it divided or divided it even more?
6: Well, I mean, it depends on who you are. There are certain states out there that are trying to actively work with their residents and with other governors and other states uh, to ensure that the spread of COVID-19 is mitigated and to ensure that this kind of thing never happens again. Uh, But the divisions really come from the upper levels of government. The president has had mixed messaging from the beginning. He's pitted states against each other and he's pitted states against the federal government and in a time when uh, all efforts need to be kind of put into one basket in order to slow a spread that is Uh, you know, crippled uh, the economy from coast to coast in the United States. Uh, The divisions are really obvious and really glaring when you look at things like testing, when you look at things like how the president is is pinning uh, individual states against each other to try and compete with each other. Uh, And I think that this is going to be lessons learned either for the next time this kind of health crisis comes or for whoever may take the Oval Office in November to see what not to do uh, during a health crisis.
0: Hmm. Reggie Giacchini's been with us, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, you take care. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Thank you. All right. Uh, one of the uh, the greatest concerns of all of this is uh, the COVID nineteen thing. We're stuck home. Uh, we're burning the heck out of Netflix and all of that, but there's no sports. Although I did rather enjoy watching uh, the '93 and uh, sorry '92 and '93 World Series uh, games replayed, which was kind of cool to see all of that happen again. Uh, but then again, how often can you watch uh, old sports shows that you already kind of know the outcome of? Um, you know, maybe for a big, a little while for the big games, but other than that. So a lot of people have been questioning um, how and when, if sports are going to get back together and, and get uh, uh, reorganized and playing again. Uh, many have said that, you know, as long as there's no crowds, we can still do this for the TV audience. And that will at least make uh, self-isolation a bit better. But it's now been announced that the PGA Tour is set to resume in June without an audience. Is this the first step? Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of The Scott Radley Show, heard every weeknight right here on CH. Mel, and sports columnist for your Hamilton Spec, he's with us now. Scott, I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. Uh, broadcasting from home and all that sort of
7: thing. Yeah, no kidding. You know, you know, you were watching the '92 and '93 Blue Jays. I actually caught myself for a few minutes the other night watching cornhole. You ever watched? You know what you I'm sorry. No. Cornhole. Is this X-rated? No, 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 no! Oh, no! It's the opposite of X-rated. If anybody in cornhole got naked, boy, people would turn the channel immediately. Uh, this is this is basically throwing beanbags into a little hole on a wooden board that's on an angle. I got one of those and, downstairs. Yeah, there you go. And but there are professional cornholers, and this is this is the yeehaw Ozark good old boy show of all time because they're drinking beer on the side, they're screaming at each other, but they have the bowling or the bass fishing, like shirts that have 47 different advertisers on them. It's unbelievable that you could throw a beanbag and somehow turn that into a living. Well, I have one more word for that. Darts? (laughs) Darts? I mean, look, the difference is, I mean, you've played darts before. Darts is incredibly hard to do well. Yes. I mean, it's an incredibly meticulous kind of thing that you have to spend Years and years and years and years to get to that level, and billiards, same thing. And all cornhole is like lawn darts. You know, yes. they have a professional lawn dart league, although they're illegal now. But I, I would watch that lawn dart catching. I see. I
0: put this right up there with watching poker and uh, watching darts on a sports network. It, I'm missing the point it, here, and I'm having a hard
7: time finding a NASCAR race. Come on, desperate times. Well, no, yeah. NASCAR races, as long as the volume is off in the uh, driver's microphones, I guess everyone's good.
0: <laughs> yes. That's a whole different story. Alright, uh, PGA uh, set to resume in yeah. June. Is this yeah. the first stage? I mean, they're outdoors, they're in the middle of nowhere, it seems... Yeah. Uh, I, can we do this? I don't, know.
7: I don't know if it's the first stage. I it, To me, if there is a sport that you could do safely and you could sell as being safe, it would be golf, because again, I mean, you're talking about a huge course. You can the closest that any golfer is going to get to another person is his caddy. And whether the, you know, they may even, and I haven't heard this yet, they may even say, look, you carry your own bag. You don't have a caddy right now. I mean, I, I haven't heard that. Um, but if you Hey, it's bad if,
0: enough not using a cart. I don't know if I could do it without a caddy. That's grueling.
7: It would be, and I don't <laughs> think they'll do that. I think what they'll do is they'll require both the caddy and the player to be tested. Yeah. And if they're both negative, then they're both permitted to play. But if you don't have fans on the course, if this is just a made-for-TV event, and with the way that the players and everyone else is spaced out, I mean, if it, it seems to me that there's going to be no problem doing that. And, and some golf courses, I was talking to Mackenzie Hughes this week, who is the PGA Tour pro from Dundas, and he lives down in North Carolina now. And their courses have remained open, but they have very, very meticulous social distancing rules in place. So you don't touch the flagstick, for example, and inside the cup, they have fitted a styrofoam ring around the base of the flagstick, so the ball doesn't go all the way into the hole. It sort of just sits there, so you don't have to. Sort of like a cup, sort of like a cup condom, kind of. But you don't have to touch anything as a result. So you're not driving. You're not driving carts. You're not touching a flagstick. You're not touching the hole. You're only touching your own clubs and your own ball, and therefore, really, I mean, and you're spread apart. There's nobody around you. Golf seems to to be the one that would be pretty easy to work. But when you say, is this the the first step, the problem becomes after that, I'm sure there are other sports that I'm just not thinking of. Cornhole, for example, um, where you can have (laughs) the kind of distance you need. You are obsessed with the cornhole now. I I encourage everyone to. Go Are you to watching that Tiger Star. Show
0: too on Netflix? You know oh. the cornhole and the Tiger Show might go hand in hand,
7: as well as Ozark. We it, it, we were talking to a local zoo, private zoo owner this week, who is who has said how detrimental Tiger King has been to their business because now everybody well, thinks that if you have big tigers, that you're a nut job. Um, yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so what it,
0: about team sports? What about team sports? Any chance of this yeah. happening? I mean, baseball, mm, certainly basketball, hockey. I don't know.
7: That's the real problem. Uh, how do you do that when you have that many more people? I mean, look at football. We'll go from the biggest to the smallest. Football, you've got 40-something players on your roster. You've got 20. I mean, if the NFL, you got 20 or the CFL, 20-something coaches and trainers and officials and everything else. I mean, And, and every single play – the whole point of it is to not have social distancing. I mean, if you try to enforce social distancing in football, every play is a touchdown, um, which gets boring <laughs> after a All while. All of a sudden, it's flag football. So you can't. I don't know how you do that. Uh, baseball, there is certainly the possibility for more space. It's a big field. Uh, you heard um, what's his name? Uh, oh, what's the what's the doctor in the states? The uh, um, the guy who talks every Fauci? day. Fauci. Thank you, Fauci, yeah. I was either going to say that or
0: Dr. Oz. I wasn't sure which way you were going to go here.
7: No, the Fauci. So, I mean, he said, look, you could do this maybe if you move all the athletes and coaches and everyone, get them tested, and once they are negative and once they're clear, you put them in a hotel altogether, and there's no access to anybody else, and they go in a bus from the hotel to the field, and they play their games and come back to the hotel. I mean, that's I one know. way that potentially you could do it. The problem with that is going to be how long before the players are like, you know what, we've now been in a hotel and at the field and nowhere else for four months. I'd love to see my wife, love to see my kids. I feel like I'm in the California Penal League now. Um, so I, that's, you know, that, it becomes tougher. in hockey, I mean, hockey is even less easy because it's indoors i mean baseball at least the breezes blow potentially the virus away hockey so so we've been
0: hearing so we've been hearing from uh nba and the nhl that you know they may try to do some sort of summer playoff thing or what have you but meanwhile we're hearing stuff like festivals concerts they will be like the last thing to go back because of obvious reasons but when you think about it you know 15, uh, 18, 20,000 people in in an arena watching a hockey game or a basketball game is no different than watching Bruce Springsteen. So is there really any chance of these stick-and-ball sports getting
7: back by the summer? There is, again, under unbelievably stringent circumstances, as Souch outlined. But even with that, Scott, there are caveats, because this is only going to work for leagues that have very, very, very lucrative TV deals. Because if you don't have anybody in the stands, nobody buying beer, nobody buying hot dogs, nobody paying for tickets, that money is gone. So can you afford to start and pay your players with the money you're making? Well, you know, one league that can't is the CFL. The CFL is a gate league. So the CFL has a TV deal with TSN, but that's not going to be enough to cover everything and keep them afloat. So a league like that, it becomes a real nightmare if you can't have – somehow some people in the stands uh but like the nba's tv money major league baseball's tv money the nfl heaven uh enormous and so if they can figure out how to make sure everybody involved tests negative and then stays isolated from everybody else theoretically financially you could make a go of it and you could probably make it happen. It's just these are these are Scott these are so many people involved, so complicated. One person, right? Let's say you do the major league baseball. And everybody gets tested, everyone lives in a hotel. One person sneaks out to go buy some something at a store. Yeah. Now do you have to retest everybody before mm-hmm. the thing can start again probably? And So what know, is like, your
0: wh- What is your prediction? Do you think we will see sports in the summer months? Will we see sports before Labor Day?
7: My prediction is this. Um, I don't know, obviously. Nobody knows the answer to that one. I think the answer probably will come. We've heard the Prime Minister say, look, this isn't about numbers. This isn't about whether we get down to a certain number of positive cases. It's about a vaccine and everything else. Well, listen, a vaccine could be two years away, three years away. It may never come. I don't I don't actually believe when he says that. I think if you get down to a manageable number where the number of people who are getting this are very low, I think there's going to be an immense amount of pressure to start opening this thing up. Not only because people really want to watch sports, but people forget how many people – are directly impacted by the sports industry. It's not just the guys or the women on the field or the coaches or the broadcasters. It's the people who sell hot dogs and Mm -hmm. sell beer and, and, and take tickets and the people who make those hot dogs that can be sold and the beer and the people who distribute that. I mean, it is a massive, massive enterprise that affects all kinds of people all over the economy. And if things are looking like the numbers are going way, way down, still out there, but going way, way down, The pressure to let this start getting back rolling again, to start making some money, is going to be enormous.
0: Scott Radley has been with us, host of The Scott Radley Show. You can hear him every weeknight right here on CHML. And sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, thank you so much for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a great weekend.
7: You too. Watch some (laughs) Cornhole.
0: I'm going downstairs in the basement to find ours. Uh, Thank you for that. I am.